As most of you know, we've been in this little series through Ephesians chapter 1, entitled Us, because Ephesians is uh, largely about the church, that would be us. And if you've been here in this series, you'll know that uh, the reason there is an us, the reason us happens to be so special, is because of Jesus. I mean, our being blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms, our living to the praise of His glorious grace, our being adopted into His family as His sons, our being chosen, our having been lavished grace upon us with all wisdom and understanding, all of these things and others, our, our living holy and blameless in His sight, all that's because of Jesus. It's all because of Jesus who is our head, who is our source. And so what we want to do today is spend some time before we talking, start talking about the uh, lasting glory that he's given to us. I want us to talk about the gloriousness of our head who is Jesus Christ. Last week we kind of talked about the plan a little bit, about how the grand plan at the heart of it is this desire on God's behalf to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. But today I want to focus on the headship in particular before we get to the glory that he's given to us. And so let's go ahead and stand out of respect for God who's speaking to us through his word. This is Ephesians chapter 1, and we're going to be reading verses 9 and 10 to begin with. And he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfillment to bring all things in heaven and on earth under one head, even Christ. May God bless Reem's word. You may be seated. Again, we, we've been talking about the plan, but today I want to talk about the glorious nature of, of the head who is Jesus as we hammer home this really important image of us being the body under the head who is Jesus because this image of us being under the headship of Jesus as one body together is so important, not just in what it teaches, but in what it doesn't. Because the image of us being a body under the headship of Jesus combats many false pictures of the church that a great many churches naturally hold. One false image is the church as a gas station where I come to get my tank filled. You know, on occasion I just need a little boost and so I come in and I get, I get my boost, I get a little inspiration, I get my tank filled and I'm okay for another week. And if you're really spiritual, you're, you're okay with coming in just like once a month because you've got a really good tank. And, uh, and that's kind of how sometimes people look at it. Just I just get inspired and I get recharged so I can make it through another week with God. Sometimes people will come through and they look at it uh, a, a little bit differently. They will look at the, the church as a theater, a movie theater, where maybe I can be entertained for a while. Or maybe it's just edutainment. But the idea is I come in wanting to disconnect from the world for an hour, hour and a half, just kind of check out, check into something else, hope the seats are comfortable, and I hope I leave with a smile on my face in a way that I didn't when I came through the doors. I'm just looking to be entertained, maybe edutained, and it's not that all movies are necessarily bad. Sometimes you watch a movie and you come away kind of changed personally. That's how we look at a theater sometimes. Others will have a view of the church that it's a drugstore that's there to fill my prescription for my pain. And we all have different therapeutic needs. Some of us, we just need a little massage. Some of us, we need some serious drugs because we've had one of those weeks or one of those years or one of those lives. And I just need to frame my pain and difficulties in an appropriate way so I, so I can keep going. Others will look at the church as the big box retailer where I get all my needs met in one place. It's a safe and a clean environment where I can get, I don't know, my needs met and all the right programs for me and my family at a 
reasonable price. And it's a place where I want to do the things I want to do with the people I want to do them with. And so we're looking largely at the church along the lines of programs and services that are rendered. It's the, it's the big box retail store. And then there are those who look at the church as a small pond where I can be a big fish. It's the place where my ego needs get met, where, where my ego gets stroked or where I get praised for my contributions or appreciated for my giftedness or just simply appreciated for me being me. It's sort of like Mayberry where everybody knows everybody else's name and it's just a wonderful po- positive feeling to be in this little pond and to be one of the big fish. Now, does that sound familiar to, do, to you? Have you ever thought any of those things about the church? You don't have to raise your hand if you have. Now, those aren't bad images, but they're images that stick, and here's why they stick. They're not overtly wicked. I like drugstores. I like big box retail stores. Well, not really. I want other people to go there, but, you know, we need them. And I like going to the theater. You know, I, I like those things. I like all of those different pictures. Who doesn't want a gas station from time to time? The problem is, while they're not bad pictures, they're the wrong pictures because you don't see those images of the church presented anywhere in the Bible. They're distortions. The picture that comes to us in Ephesians chapter 1 and the picture that comes to us in other places in the New Testament is that the church is the body of Christ under the headship of Jesus. Jesus is the head. And what that means is that the church is all about him. It's from him and to him. It's all about him because he's the head. Jesus isn't the head because the body got together and elected the head. No, the the head chose us and made us to be his body. It's not just that the head is there as authority, although... Authority is implied in the head. There's something more. Life is in the head. It's just all about Jesus. This is a little bit more plainly put over in the book of Colossians, another book that the Apostle Paul writes. And here's what it says. I love the way it's put there. The Son is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the RK, the beginning, and the firstborn from among the dead. He's the start, so that in everything he might be the supremacy. That is to say that Jesus is the beginning, but he's also the place to where it all leads. He's the Alpha and Omega. He is the Arche and the Telos. He is the river that takes us, and he's the destination to which the river takes us. It's all about Jesus because he's the life of the body because the life is in the head. You know, one of the simplest ways to, I don't know, put an end to the life of a snake is you separate the head from the body. Now, apparently the body of a snake will die a lot faster. The head will actually survive for about an hour. So if you ever happen to chop off the head of a rattlesnake, don't reach down and grab the head to throw it away. It's it's still alive because the life of the body is in the head. And also the authority because the authority, the direction comes out from the head to the rest of the body through the central nervous system. And and so, you know, the brain will tell my hand, reach out here and walk over here and pick up that pen. And the, 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 the brain's not just making the decisions. It's making sure everything works together so that the whole body is collaborating together. All the members are working together so that something can be achieved. And so when we're talking about the headship of Jesus Christ, we're talking about he is our life. It's all about him. And he is the director. Whatever he says goes. Whatever he teaches, we believe. Wherever he presses, that's where we follow because it's all about the head. We're the body of Christ under the headship of Jesus. Now, some of you are saying, okay, tell me something I don't know. All right, let's just kind of hang out on this image for just a second. When the New Testament 
presents the body of Christ, the church, as the body of Christ, where Jesus is at the head, what the, what the, what the New Testament is communicating is that Jesus is saying, I choose to align myself with and operate uniquely through the body. Or let's put it up on the screen as I put it in my notes. Jesus Christ has chosen to operate through us, the, the church. It's not just that Jesus says, I want to align myself with you people and I just want to partner with you people. What Jesus is saying is, I am, I am choosing to operate in this world uniquely through the likes of you and through other congregations like you, others that are like us, which are the fullness of, of Christ, the body of Christ, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Now, when we recognize this, here's what we need to ask ourselves. Here's the question. Since Jesus Christ is committed to his body, the church, why would I, as a follower of Jesus Christ, not be committed to the church? Or let me put it a little bit differently. I say I'm under the headship of Jesus Christ. He's my Lord and Savior. He's my head. But I don't want to cooperate with other people who cooperate with him. I don't want to be a part of the body of Christ that's under the headship of Jesus. I just want to do my own thing. Is that even consistent? If you're under the headship of Jesus Christ, you're one of the members of the body. And that means you're collaboratively working with the rest of the body. But you say, I just don't want to work with the rest of the body who's working with him. In what sense is Jesus actually really your head? If Jesus loves the church, should you love the church? Since Jesus is building the church, should you be building the church? Since Jesus is directing the church, how in the world can you be directed if you're not collaborating with others whom he's directing? If you're under the headship of Jesus Christ, you're going to be a member, an active member of the body. Now, this stands in contradiction or, or distinction to all those other images that we just ran through, the gas station and the theater and um, I don't even remember what all the, the gas station, theater, help me out here. Drug store, very good. Big box store, small pond. You know what's wrong with all those images? They're all about me. Fill, fill me up. Serve my needs. Give me the programs that I want. Anesthetize my pain. Entertain me. Make me feel better. I'm at the center of the whole deal. And the other problem with all those images, there's not a whole lot of action there. You're just a recipient. When you're thinking about a body, what comes to mind? Movement. Action. Submission to the head. You say, I'm just under the headship of Jesus Christ, but I don't do anything and I don't cooperate with other people. I would just kind of wonder, are you really operating under the headship of Jesus Christ? Come on. Now, I understand what a lot of people want to do. They want to say, well, I just want to operate independently. Can't it just be me and Jesus? Can't I just do my own thing for Jesus? Well, I, I know that that's what you want to do. But just because you want to operate independently, does that mean that Jesus wants you to do your own thing for him? You say, Ernest, well, that just sounds so limiting that I have to cooperate together with other people in the body of Christ. That sounds so limiting. Well, maybe it is limiting, but that's how Jesus did it. Jesus limited himself to the body. He tied himself to the body so tightly that it's like the relationship between a head and the body. And you say, well, I just don't, I don't know. I just don't really want to do that kind of thing. You know why it is that we want to do our own thing with Jesus and not to go with the body? Sometimes we've been burned in other churches. I, I get it. I understand that. But here's something else that sometimes goes on. I'm not saying this is true of you. I'm just saying this is maybe true of me. In times when I've wanted to do my own thing. Full of myself. 
Why can't it just be me and Jesus? Am I not a more important member than other people? Do I not have enough gifts? Why do I need these other people with their own shape, with their own gifts and talents and abilities and experiences and, and callings? Why do I need these other people? You say, Ernest, that sounds really arrogant. Well, yeah, it does, doesn't it? I'm not going to cooperate with the rest of the body because why do I need them? Jesus got me. You say, well, Ernest, I'm not arrogant. I just, I just don't want to do, I just want to do my own thing with Jesus. I know you want to do that. But that's not how Jesus operates. And that's not how Jesus is directing you. And you say, well, why in the world would Jesus tie himself, his glorious head, to a feeble body like the church? I don't know. That's a good question. But don't deny that that's what Jesus has done. And when some of us, when we press right down to the base of it, we're just either not wild about submission or we think a little too highly of our own selves And deep down inside, although nobody ever really wants to say this, sometimes we might feel like, I I, I might be, I don't know, maybe I'm just too good for this body or the body. Nobody wants to say that out loud. So let me say something out loud that I think most of us do believe. In our finer moments, I think everyone in this room believes this. Jesus Christ, actually, he is too good for me. He's up here. We're down here. This This is the truth. But he chooses by his grace, nonetheless, to work with the likes of us. And so a third thing that we all know is it's actually a privilege to work with Jesus. And actually it's also a deep privilege to work alongside others who are working under his headship. I know there's an inclination sometimes for people to just want to do their own thing. But that's just not Jesus' inclination. And when you stop back up, pray about it, take a deep breath, you go, man, how, how wrong have I been to have not wanted to be an active member of the body of Christ because it's a privilege to be under his headship with other people. Now, having said all that, Jesus knows who he's working with. I mean, you know, we're not perfect. We know that. And Jesus does too. So here's what Jesus has done for you and me. He has equipped us. And we've been talking about how God operates, how he's equipped us with with truth that's real and hope that's secure. And he also gives us a plan. He doesn't just say, hey, shoot from the hip, work it out as you go, figure it out on your own, make stuff up as, as you're going along. That's not how the book of Ephesians unfolds for us. I saw recently this story about a man who was crossing over the Gastineau Channel. It's about a half mile wide. It's in Alaska. It's near Juneau. And he crossed the channel in a homemade watercraft. It's actually entirely made of uh, duct tape. It's inflatable duct tape. And uh, he goes out there with a paddle and his dog and a conspicuous lack of any life vest. And you think, that's just kind of crazy, especially since the water's 45 degrees. Well, sure enough, the Coast Guard has to come to the rescue, and it's all a, a terrible disaster. And as I'm reading about this story, I'm thinking... That's just crazy. Who goes out there and builds a watercraft, risking their life and the life of others on board with the wrong materials, figuring it out as they go? That's just insane. Well, do you think that God is satisfied with us building a flimsy church, making it up as we go with inadequate materials? Of course not. And that's what we've been talking about as we've been going through Ephesians. God has given us the equipment that we need. He's given the body 
what we need. Every spiritual gift, every spiritual blessing, all of the equipment, all of the tactics that are necessary, and we've been talking about that. Last week, we mentioned a couple of the materials that he's given us, the truth that's real and hope that's secure. There was one other thing, a third thing that I mentioned last week that we didn't get to talk about, and that is a glory that lasts. So let's go ahead and wrap that up, because next week we're going to be on to Easter and talking about the, the resurrection and all the rest. I'm really excited, but there's one more thing that we need to talk about, that glory that lasts, that is given to us by our glorious Savior, Jesus Christ. So once again, I'm going to invite you to stand. Out of respect for God, I'm speaking to us through his word. This is Ephesians chapter 1, verses 14. 13 and 14, and also verse 18. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of the truth, word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. May God bless the reading of his word and may be seated. Now in verse 14... It talks about how we are his possession, and then in verse 18, it talks uh, about how we are actually his inheritance. We're not just any possession. We are his inheritance. Do you know what the inheritance is? Your inheritance is what makes you feel rich. Your inheritance is the one thing, if there's, there's a burning building, and you've got to go in, and there's one thing you've got to grab, it's your inheritance. It's what makes you feel wealthy. It's what makes you feel blessed. And here, the Bible is saying with great courage... Our God, who made all the planets and the stars and the galaxies and the black holes, which we can now see, he makes all of this, and yet he looks at you and he looks at me and he says, you make me feel rich. The whole, the whole universe is this giant field, like Jesus talks about in one of his parables. But the treasure that's buried at the center for which God gives up everything, that just so happens to be you. You are his grand possession. You are the prize. You are what make God feel rich. You're what makes him feel rich. Do you think people need to know that? When I was growing up, there was all this material about search for significance and how people are struggling to matter, know that they matter and all the rest. Guess what? These, these matters of glory, do I, do I matter? Am I significant? They've only gotten worse. We talk about it now in terms of low self-esteem, but here's the truth. The reality is it's worse now for teenagers than when I was a teenager, and we've been measuring this for decades. People have always struggled with, with what's called vain glory in the Bible. This desire or this feeling of I, I need to matter, but I don't matter. It's only gotten worse. Thomas Curran, who is a, he's a social psychologist and a British professor at, at Bath University, he talks about how perfectionism is on the rise and he talks about this socially prescribed perfectionism which is directly tied to mental illness to things like bulimia suicidal ideation and real big problems here in our country such as depression and anxiety i don't know if you knew this or not but the statistic now for teenagers is seven out of ten teenagers currently are struggling with either depression or anxiety or both seven out of ten and he talks about this rise that's happening in terms of socially prescribed perfectionism. Now, let's just kind of cut right to the heart of it. What's at the heart of all of this? It's at the heart, at the heart of all of this is this idea that I need to perfect an imperfect self. Not that I'm trying to be a high achiever, 
but I just need to perfect an imperfect self so that I can be accepted by other people. And the way in our society that we do that is through material possession, through appearance, and through performance. And all of this gets played out so incredibly publicly via social media. On top of that, these ideas get reinforced in all kinds of different social institutions, including our schools. My daughter's about to graduate from high school, and I know that now the average high school student, when they graduate, they've taken 112 standardized tests. That doesn't include all of the, the other metrics and rankings and percentiles along the way that have been used to sort of categorize our teenagers in accordance with levels of imperfection. On top of all that, we have advertisers that are preying on insecurities, building up these insecurities, and in addition to all this, everything being played out on the public scene, again, you've got being communicated to people because of their lack of involvement in churches and because of of the wrong kind of role models, here's how you perfect the imperfect self. Material possession, appearances, and performance. And at the end of the day, we've got a bunch of teenagers that are stuck in what used to be known as a Greek hell. Let me, let me explain what I mean by this. Just imagine yourself constantly trying to strive to the peak of achievement. You're climbing this mountain of achievement, and you're not going to stop until you get to the peak. And then you get to the peak, and you discover it's a false peak. It looked like it, it was the peak, but it wasn't the peak. And then you keep going to the peak, and then when you get to the actual peak, you discover there's other mountains to climb, and I have to keep going. And so it's up and down and up and down and up and down. In Greek ideas, in Greek philosophy, there were these gods that condemned Sisyphus to a hell of sorts, rolling the stone to the top of the mountain, only for it to roll back again, rolling it to the top again, only to have it roll back again, and caught in this perpetual state of futility, always working, but actually never getting anywhere and knowing they're never going to get anywhere, working and working and working and never actually changing a thing. And this sort of hellish perfectionism is only getting worse in our society. In 1989, it was 9% of the teenage population that reported what would be considered clinically significant levels of uh, socially prescribed perfectionism. Two years ago, 2017, that number doubled to 18%. The estimations now are it's going to be at clinical levels in more than one out of three students by the year 2050. And already we've got students, again, who are reporting seven out of ten of them struggles with depression or anxiety or both. And you know the suicidal ideation and the, and the times that students are thinking about this and are acting on it. I'm just telling you, we are in the middle of an epidemic that is growing. Now, what's the prescription for this? Thomas Curran, who's an expert in all this, says it's kind of complicated, but it comes down to a couple of things. People need to show compassion to themselves and recognize that all human beings are imperfect. You know, nobody's perfect, and, you know, give yourself a break. But people have been trying that tactic for years. It doesn't seem to be working. You know what the gospel offers? Here's what the good news offers to you and to me. The God who created the sun, the moon, and the stars, all the galaxies, he looks at me and he looks at you, and he says, you're my treasure. You make me feel rich. I gave up everything for you to get the whole field just for you. When you matter supremely to the one who supremely matters, do you think that that changes you? When you take that truth and you screw it down deep into your heart, 
Absolutely it does. People need the gospel. They need a glory that lasts. But it's not just that we get to see ourselves through God's eyes. Here's what also the gospel teaches. It's not just that I can say I supremely matter to the one who's supremely significant. Here's what I also know. I can look forward to a glory that is yet to come. In verse 17, here's how the scripture puts it. Let me read this to you. It says that we're waiting until the redemption of those who are God's possession. Now, in verse 7, it talks, that we've already, talks about how we've been already redeemed that we've been covered by the blood of the Lamb, that we stand forgiven because of redemption that's already come. So what is this coming redemption meaning? What is he talking about? Well, here's what he's talking about. Right now, you and I, we do not have the freedom from the influence and the presence of sin. But we've been set free from the penalty of sin and the consequence of sin because of the redemption that has already come. But we're not currently free from the influence of sin and the presence of sin but the Bible teaches that day is coming. Here's how it's put over in Romans chapter 8, verse 18 and following. For I consider that the sufferings of the present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is going to be revealed to us. For the creation eagerly waits with anticipation for God's sons to be revealed. The creation itself will also be set free from the bondage to decay into the glorious freedom of God's children. Not only that, but we ourselves who have the Spirit as the first fruits, we also groan with ourselves eagerly waiting for adoption, the redemption of our bodies. Now, what's that talking about? What that means is on the last day of history, a glory will descend so powerful, so transforming, so beauty, beautiful, that the, the blast of the beauty of this coming glory will blow away all that is wrong with this world and make all things right. There is a glory coming down into you and, and into me where the good work that God began in Christ Jesus will have been carried out to completion and we will be remade into the very image of Jesus Christ. Looking at us will be like looking at the sun in all of his glory and the blast of this glory will be so tremendous that the fallout from it will undo all that needs to be undone, that every wrong will be made right. So that this world has no more death or decay or suffering or disease or imperfection. It's like a new dawn or the ultimate spring is coming. And so as a Christian, here's what I know because of the gospel. I can say, because I know this is true, God, you look upon me as your ultimate treasure. But what you're seeing in me now, you're going to turn into an actual reality. You are going to make me like your son, Jesus Christ. I don't know how long it's going to take. I'm not exactly sure how this is going to occur. But I know that the good work you've begun in me, you will carry it on to completion. Your glory is going to descend upon me to the point where I will even have a glorified body. I will be set free, not just from the consequences and the penalty of sin. I'm going to be set free from its very presence and power in my life. God, I see how you see me, and I also see what's coming, and I know that you're not done with me yet. When I know that I am down, when I am down on myself, when I'm down on a situation, I can remind myself of how God sees me, and I can look forward to what is yet to come. You think the world doesn't need that? People who are stuck in this Greek hell of rolling the stone up only to have it roll down again, recognizing they're never going to perfect an imperfect self and they're never going to be accepted by others the way that they want to be accepted and they're never going to accept themselves the way they want to be accepted. But there's ultimate acceptance in God and there's an ultimate perfection yet to come because of the promise that has come to us through Jesus Christ. The glory that matters makes all the difference for you and for me and the world needs this. In fact, they're dying for a lack of it. So now some of you are saying, well, that sounds all kind of nice. 
glorious. But I know glory doesn't last. It's, it tends to fade. How do you know that God's always going to look at me and look at you like this? And how do, you, how do I know that God's actually going to finish this good work that he's begun? Let me just bring a few things to your attention. First of all, we know that we've been chosen in Christ. He chose us in Christ. You've been chosen by him. Are you telling me that God chose poorly, that he's a poor planner? Really? God adopted us as his sons. If you were to turn around and adopt someone, do you think you're ever going to give them back? Really? And if you say, no, I would never give my son back if I adopted them. Okay. Well, are you saying that you're a better father than your heavenly father? Are you saying you're a better planner than, than your heavenly father is a planner? God began everything by his grace. I love this verse where it talks about how he, how he lavished grace on us with all wisdom and understanding. It's not like he had buyer's remorse and got in and said, well, I was going to do 100% grace, but woo, you know, this one's really bad. I didn't understand. No, he starts at 100% with grace. You think that God's going to later turn around and say, well, I'm changing the deal because, you know, you're just too bad for me. You're more than I can take. If he began in grace, he's going to continue on in grace. And to say otherwise is, is to look at God as some sort of stereotypical used car dealer who does this little bait and switch routine with you. He is a perfect father. He is perfectly wise in his choices. And his grace is sufficient to overcome all of our deficiencies. Do you believe that about God? If you believe that about God, then his glory that he has given to you will last. But it's not just that. I love verse 14. This is so good. It says that God has given you the promised Holy Spirit who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance. You know what the word deposit means? It means like the first installment. This is so good. The moment you hear the word of truth, the moment that you receive the gospel, at that moment the Holy Spirit comes into your life. Who is the Holy Spirit? God. Woo-hoo. You know, that was a question mark, John. Let's, let's do stronger. Um, God. It's not an it. It's not a hundred bucks and then some. When you believe, God comes into your life. That's the deposit. That's, that's the installment. Now, do you think that if the deposit's as big as God, that God is somehow going to back out of the deal? Really? When you believe, God himself comes into your life, and the moment God comes into your life, you start changing because everything that God touches changes. And so he's coming to maybe your little pathetic dwelling, and he's redone the foyer he's taken out the sink he's put on another floor he's put in a pool or he's taken out your pool and made a bigger pool all of a sudden when god comes to your life know what happens he starts working on you so that your little residence becomes a castle fit for a king and you think that when that's the nature of the first installment that god's going to back out come on god doesn't start things that he doesn't finish He's not the kind of father who adopts and then kicks us out later when we disappoint. The glory that he has given to you now will always stay with you. It will last and he will carry out to completion the good work he's begun in you. You need to know this. In those times when you've had a bad week or other people have put you down and that happens, you need to know. You are the father's treasure. You matter supremely to the one who matters supremely. And God's not done with you yet. In fact, when God is done with you and he remakes you into the image of the Son, have you seen the pictures of Jesus that come to us, especially in the book of Revelation? He is glorious and exalted. That's your future. When God's glory has come upon you and you are removed from the influence and the power of sin and he has finished that good work he's begun in you, Even angels will be tempted to fall at your feet and worship you were it not for their knowledge that this is just the grace of God working itself out in your life. 
You are supremely valued and your future is supremely glorious. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Father, thank you so much for the way you have brought us under the headship of Jesus Christ with a truth that is real because we're living in a world with truth deficits. A hope that is secure. We, we, we can have our present shaped by this assurance of what is yet to come. And thank you for this glory, this tremendous glory that lasts, that you will never leave us nor forsake us. You will never see us anything as other than treasured, that not a single thing we do from now until all eternity is ever going to change the extent of your love for us in this moment. And it will never change your commitment to finishing what it is that you have begun in us, and that is to remake us into the very image of your Son, Jesus Christ, the firstborn among many. Lord, we are living in a world that needs this truth, that needs this hope, that needs this glory, that is struggling and struggling and struggling. And we know where to get what is needed in the Son, Jesus Christ. So, Lord, help us as your body to work under your headship, doing what it is that you direct and finding you the Alpha and Omega of our life together. May we not slip into these strange consumer-oriented mentalities where the church is just a theater or a drugstore or a gas station or a big box retailer or little pond where it's about me, myself, and I. Lord, may we take seriously the image of the body under the headship of Jesus Christ. And may the glory of your headship humble us into submission. And may we be excited about your plan and the meaning that is attached to it. Lord, we consider it to be a privilege to be under your headship. And we consider it a privilege to work alongside of one another as we all together, all of us, work under your headship and your direction. Now, you do extraordinary things through us, but all to your glory, that in all things you might have the supremacy. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.